0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Quantum computing and security standards, notes on the cyber phases of a hybrid war, and how depressingly conventional cybercrime persists in wartime. Pyongyang operators are using Maui ransomware against healthcare targets. Malek Ben Salam from Accenture looks at the security risks of GPS. Our guest is Brian Kenyon of Island to discuss enterprise browser security and Shanghai's big data exposure. From the CyberWire Studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Wednesday, July 6, 2022. The U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, that's NIST, at the end of a six-year competitive search has announced the four winners in its program to develop quantum-resistant encryption algorithms. This represents a milestone en route to NIST's publication of standards for post-quantum cryptography, expected in 2024. According to NIST, the algorithms are for general encryption, used when we access secure websites, and NIST has selected the Crystals-Kyber algorithm. Among its advantages are comparatively small encryption keys— that two parties can exchange easily, as well as its speed of operation. For digital signatures, often used when we need to verify identities during a digital transaction or to sign a document remotely, NIST has selected the three algorithms Crystals Dilithium, Falcon, and Sphinx Plus. Reviewers note the high efficiency of the first two, and NIST recommends Crystals Dilithium as the primary algorithm with Falcon for applications that need smaller signatures than Dilithium can provide. The third, Sphinx Plus, is somewhat larger and slower than the other two, but it is valuable as a backup for one chief reason. It's based on a different math approach than all three of NIST's other selections. Taking note of NIST's announcement, CISA outlines some steps organizations can take now as they prepare for developments over the next two years— CISA says, although NIST will not publish the new post-quantum cryptographic standard for use by commercial products until 2024, CISA and NIST strongly recommend organizations start preparing for the transition now by following the post-quantum cryptography roadmap. That roadmap includes turns like inventorying your system for the use of public key cryptography, creating a plan for transitioning to the new standards as they emerge, and preparing to inventory your vendors as compliance becomes an issue. Naturally, education and training of your workforce will be an issue, and worth preparing for in advance. Sure, you may object, here we are worrying about the risks of quantum computing when it's not really even a thing yet, and to be sure, the field is in its lab-bench phase, with physicists tuning lasers like they're a hot-rod Lincoln, but the sector is maturing fast, and it will be here before you know it. Ukrainian mobile provider Kievstar has continued to provide service during the war as it struggles to work through disruption. In Bloomberg's account, that disruption has been largely kinetic and, sadly, sometimes lethal. Physical destruction of infrastructure has been more of a problem than cyber attacks. The relatively small role Russian offensive cyber operations have played in the war so far has not prevented others from drawing lessons from Russia's conduct of its hybrid war. China is said by CyberScoop to be watching the action in cyberspace especially closely with a view to sorting out its options in the event of a war to conquer Taiwan. The consensus lessons are strike quickly, pick targets that would cripple the enemy early on, and rely on attack methods that never have been observed in public. Criminals continue to shape their social engineering to events, especially tragic events. ZDNet reports that Ukrainian police have arrested nine alleged members of a gang the authorities say are using the promise of European aid checks to beleaguered Ukrainians as fish bait in a tiresome version of familiar fraud victims are directed to a bogus website that presents them with an equally bogus application for assistance. Ukrainian police say, through the websites, Ukrainians were offered to form an application for the payment of financial assistance from the countries of the European Union. The victims are invited to provide their banking information so they can receive aid, and then the criminals simply rifle whatever they've been given access to. If convicted, the nine alleged thieves face up to 15 years in prison. CISA, the FBI, and the U.S. Department of the Treasury have issued a joint alert titled North Korean State-Sponsored Cyber Actors Use Maui Ransomware to Target the Healthcare and Public Health Sector. It warns of a North Korean ransomware campaign that's been in progress since at least May of 2021. The alert says North Korean state sponsored cyber actors used Maui ransomware in these incidents to encrypt servers responsible for healthcare services, including electronic health record services, diagnostic services, imaging services, and intranet services. In some cases, these incidents disrupted the services provided by the targeted HPH sector organizations for prolonged periods. How the threat actor obtained initial access is unclear. But the warning recommends that organizations pay particular attention to the dangers of phishing and that they train their personnel to recognize it, which suggests that social engineering has played a significant role in the Maui campaign. How do rating agencies look at cyber incidents and cyber risk? Moody's has sent us a pair of reports on current events, and they're interesting. The firm's Investors Service released a report detailing the credit implications of Conti's early April ransomware attack on the government of Costa Rica. The attack impacted the government's two largest revenue streams, income taxes and customs duties, and impacted the international trade and healthcare sectors most heavily. The report notes that this attack provides insights on the government's strength saying that while the attacks weren't prevented, they were handled with effective solutions. Moody's anticipates the fiscal deficit to remain close to 4.8% GDP and expects to see GDP growth of 4% in 2022. In another report, Moody's discusses the recent cyber attack on Clarion Housing Group in the United Kingdom and its implications for housing associations as a whole. On June 23rd, Clarion reported a cyber attack on their IT systems that impacted IT operations, such as scheduling repairs and maintenance. This attack comes on the heels of a number of other cyber attacks on housing associations in the past few years and highlights the need for cyber risk mitigation. According to a recent cyber survey conducted by Moody's, cyber risk remains small in the housing sector but is growing strongly with 25% spending growth from 2018 to 2020. And finally, several questions remain about the big data exposure incident that appears to have affected information held by the Shanghai National Police. Some of the data that's been posted online as a teaser by the person or persons trying to sell them, who goes by the name China Dan, have been confirmed to be genuine, but it's unclear whether all of them are. If they are the real goods, then the incident affects about a billion people, making it the biggest data exposure in history. The New York Times, like the Wall Street Journal, has been able to determine that some of the posted information is authentic. China has made no official statement on the matter, but the New York Times reports, On Chinese social media platforms like Weibo and the communication app WeChat, posts, articles, and hashtags about the data leak have been removed. On Weibo, accounts of users who posted or shared related information have been suspended, and others who talked about it have said online that they had been asked to visit the police station for a chat. And all of this suggests some official sensitivity about the matter. Why else would they want to chat? Chat in real life, we mean. Some of the hashtags that are putting a burr under official saddles way out west, Shanghai Way, Include data leak or database breach, things like that. If the data China Dan is offering is indeed legit, and at least some of it is, and the man and woman in the Shanghai street appear to be assuming that they are, then the risks are foreseeable. Identity theft, fraud, more plausible social engineering, and so forth. We're running around naked here, is a commonly quoted remark. One risk citizens of China face that people in most other countries don't is damage to their social credit. That's not like something in, say, Baltimore or Birmingham being worried about the effect bogus purchases with their credit card could have on their credit score. Social credit is a general assessment of a Chinese citizen's reliability, trustworthiness, and good citizenship. And it's a hard, quantifiable score with more consequences than the mere reputational damage you might sustain if you were falsely outed as, say, a Red Sox fan or a Wolverhampton supporter. Shameful enough to be sure, but trivial compared to a bad social credit score in Shanghai, where it could affect access to employment, housing, and so on. For many of us, the web browser serves as the primary gateway to the Internet, a universal app for accessing everything from search to email to online dashboards and databases. That versatility of the browser can be a mixed blessing, of course, because it can provide an avenue for infiltration for a whole host of bad actors. Brian Kenyon is one of the founders and chief strategy officer of a company called Island, who are looking to enhance enterprise security through the use of a custom secure web browser.
2: You know, third-party risk, and whether that's in the form of, you know, suppliers or true contractors who are accessing organizational resources, that entire aspect of our IT landscape has become a big concern for us. And it's been highlighted by any number of breaches or incidents that have taken place either through third-party access or third-party contractor access into an organization's network and applications and ultimately their data. So organizations over several years have been going to great lengths to try to get control back and be able to accurately assess, determine the the risk posture of an individual or entity that might be accessing their resources, and then apply appropriate controls. And so if you look at the evolution of how folks and organizations have dealt with this third-party risk, it started off with organizations would, they want to ensure it was their device connecting to their resources. So they'd go through the, the practice or methodology of shipping a device to the contractor, to the organization. Now, as you multiply that out, it gets really expensive, and as you start looking at, you know the current supply chain woes and and constraint we have, organizations are having a hard time finding devices and um, actual physical hardware to actually ship in a timely way. So that gave way over time to both, you know, virtual desktop infrastructure as well as a desktop as a service to try to abstract the third party's device from the equation and just present them with an access um, capability that just presented a corporate desktop to them. But at the end of the day, that became extremely expensive. It's costly to both license as well as run and manage, whether it's in the cloud or even in a traditional on-prem hardware type of virtualization. So organizations that have gone through this journey are looking for a new, better way to bring these folks on board. And so
1: where does it seem things are headed? What are some of the options on the horizon here?
2: Yeah, you know, (laughs) there's been a lot of technologies that have tried to simplify this problem. And, you know, what we see actually is is it's actually a pretty common recurring pattern in security where we looked at the symptoms of things. You know, what is the problem? Well, we can't get hardware, so let's try to find something that's easier to deploy, like VDI or desktop as a service. Or let's try to find something that's lightweight that they can install, um, like an extension in a browser or maybe an agent. And all of those are met with different friction points. But at the end of the day, they don't really truly provide the solution we're looking for, which is, I want to attest to the type of environment my contractor is using to connect to my, to, to my resources. I want to ensure that no data is lost or no data spills onto that contractor device. And I want to make sure that, ultimately, I can govern and have an accurate order log of everything that contractor is doing when they're accessing my resources. Those are the real capabilities we're looking to try to solve when we think about third-party risk. And so we've seen a number of solutions, but all of them fail in one form or another, either in the user experience, in the cost, or in the complexity of deployment. So we're seeing a big shift now where folks are looking for lightweight options that give the contractor that third-party user a very native experience. And many people are going back to a controlled web browser as a vehicle to engage this type of behavior. So when you say controlled web browser, what specifically is involved with that? Yeah. So, you know, we've seen, and, and obviously from Island's perspective, we've in, innovated around the ability to have a browser that is familiar to the end user but that the organization has ultimate control over. So what it can do, the actions it can perform, both the user as well as the browser itself, and the types of activities you want to permit. And so what organizations have seen is, A, from a deployment perspective, all you're doing is you're asking your third-party contractor to download and install a web browser, something that they do multiple times throughout their career and probably multiple times across multiple devices. Um, and then ultimately, they authenticate to the browser, and then the browser has all the security controls built into it. So if the organization decides, I don't want anything from that contractor system making it into my application, then you prevent uploads and downloads. You could prevent copy and paste. You could prevent all these types of activities that we've long feared and have used technologies like VDI to try to control.
1: You know, I, I'm probably uh, revealing myself as a bit of an old-timer here, but in a way, it kind of reminds me of you know, the old days when browsers would have a kiosk mode, you know, and you'd often see it used at the you know, the mall or the shopping center or some place like that where f- they wanted to limit access. But uh, it seems like this is, in, in some
2: way, a, a, an evolution of that. Yeah, it's almost an evolution back in history, right? Because as we look at it, you know, the cycles in IT tend to go from thin to thick client back to thin. And we find ourselves moving back to this thin client as we've really raced to the cloud, we've raced to SaaS, and now we're racing to remote employees and, and remote work and work from anywhere. And so more and more of our daily activities have actually moved into the browser. But when you think about that, it's the one enterprise application that doesn't actually have control and governance for the enterprise. And so... When you think about what we do with contractors and third parties, we're really provisioning a VDI or these remote desktops or even shipping them laptops and hardware just so they can open a web browser that we don't control and access the applications that we're worried about. It's time we've given control back of this application back to the enterprise. And in this case, it's a great use case to quickly, very inexpensively, and very securely onboard those contracts.
1: That's Brian Kenyon from Ireland. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security – And joining me once again is Malek Ben Salem. She is the technology research director for security at Accenture. Malek, it's always great to welcome you back. You know, I was uh, over the weekend visiting some friends and uh, I had their address dialed in with my GPS and I was I was thinking to myself, "Oh, these kids today, they're never going to know a world without GPS." <laughs> but of course, there are some cyber risks that go with GPS. I want to touch base with you on that today. What can you share with us?
0: Yeah, we don't think um, of GPS as as a risk, uh, you know, whether we're businesses or or individuals, but it turns out that this system, this global positioning system, is is very vulnerable uh, to either signal spoofing or signal jamming, right? So signal jamming is when uh, threat actors can jam the signals so that you don't have access to, to the signal that you need to to uh, access the GPS system. And spoofing is when they feed you the wrong information. And uh, because of this risk, the, the U.S. government actually has uh, paid attention to this problem and has issued a number of, uh, had draw, has drawn attention of the businesses to this problem and has issued a number of guidelines that uh, businesses um, should um, follow.
1: What sort of things have they suggested?
0: So, uh, you know, they developed a framework for, for the risk that is aligned with, with the NIST framework, which I can, I can share the links for. And there's a number of libraries now that device developers can use in order to authenticate and to validate the information that, is, that they're receiving by the GPS systems. And some of the recommendations is to also, you know, uh, not rely on on GPS systems only, but rather validate that information with other systems like radar systems or, or, you know, more new tools uh, like satellite information to, to identify whether the GPS information is actually correct or not.
1: Now, there's more than one GPS system up there, right? I mean, there's, there's the U.S. system, but don't the Russians have their own system as well?
0: Exactly, yeah. So one of the um, defense mechanisms, I guess, that uh, some businesses and organizations have been using is not just to rely on the U.S. system, but also use uh, the Russian system as an alternative in case the U.S. system goes down. But obviously, that comes with its own risks, right? Uh, Especially in the context that we are in, in in this, uh, you know, war uh, against the Ukraine. Um, That system is not reliable, intentionally, in some cases, not reliable. You know, the Russians may be spoofing, um, deliberately, um, you know, sending wrong information. So it's not recommended uh, to rely on that system as an alternative. It's better to use other means uh, like, you know, radar information or, you know, visual aids um, to, to identify where your location is, whether you're in a are whether you're on a ship or, uh, you know, as an aircraft pilot. It's better to use these are combined, let's say, at least uh, these other sources of information together with the uh, GPS information.
1: Yeah, I've seen uh, reports, I suppose, particularly affecting um, uh, ships at sea where there have been some spoofing incidents where, you know, and you can imagine the problems with that Uh, ship. (laughs) If a ship gets too close to land because it thinks it's not where it actually is, well, that's trouble.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And not just, uh, you know, commercial ships, but if you are, you know, if you own a boat, right, and you go to an area where... You know the waters are being, um, you know, disputed between two different countries, or there is a military exercise in the area. Then uh, the the signal may be jammed or spoofed deliberately, right? Or if there is a VIP in the area, right, mm. uh, who don't want to get their uh, location revealed then it's likely that that signal will be jammed. So you don't want to rely on it in that case, and you want to have some alternative mechanism.
1: So what are your recommendations here? I mean, is this the kind of thing where, you know, folks who would uh, be likely to have issues with uh, GPS problems, they probably already know it?
0: So uh, for organizations, I think the recommendations is to rely on the the U.S. uh, government recommendations and resources that have been provided. Again, for device manufacturers or device developers, uh, there's libraries that, that are uh, available that have to be um, checked and used in the software. But for uh, average users uh, like you and I, there is a, uh, an app that can be used to detect if uh, there is GPS jamming in the area and at least when you detect that, then you know you cannot rely on the GPS information that you have.
1: Oh, interesting. All right. Well, Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Guru Prakash, Justin Sabe, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.